Amen. You know, have a seat and let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for really tuning our hearts to sing your praise today. And now would you prepare our hearts to hear from you. Would you speak to us through your word. Help us to accept it humbly and apply it to our lives. Um, Lord, we pray you just give us so much grace as we hear what you have to say today. In Jesus' name, amen. Most new preachers are given some advice, which is a modified quote from the theologian Karl Barth, to preach with your Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And he said to, to read both, but to interpret newspapers from your Bible. Now today we might not say that, we might say to have your news app and your Bible app open at the same time. But the need to interpret current events according to eternal truths is as great as ever. If there's one non-COVID news item that has dominated recent months and years, decades even, it's the matter of race. Racial injustice, racial unrest, racial divides, and so on. I need only mention a few names, and our emotions and opinions swirl. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Walter Wallace, or more locally, Abdirahman Abdi. I thought now would be an appropriate time to discuss this, not just because it's a, a hot-button item or because racial division is one of the biggest threats to the unity of today's church, but because I believe God's Word does speak directly into these issues. Consider what we just saw in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 with the beautiful diversity of God's people in eternity. Scripture actually speaks so much about this that I won't be able to say nearly everything in one sermon. So I'm going to give you two. All right, one sermon in two parts, today and, and next week. Probably still can't say everything, so maybe there's a series down the road for us. But given what we've seen lately, given the headlines of today, and given the tensions in the air, I thought that we could use one clear, strong, biblical summary and declaration of what we believe. Might this be divisive? It's possible, as truth divides our sinful hearts all the time. But I hope this is actually unifying for us, as believers who submit ourselves to God's word. I pray that we'll all be able to, as Philippians 4 says, agree in the Lord, to agree in the Lord. My primary focus today will be how we're to address this as the church of Christ. And this is not an, a new challenge for the church at all. Even as the early church, they dealt with ethnic strife, 
especially between Jews and Gentiles at that time. And a major theme of the New Testament is unity among believers from different ethnic backgrounds. This is also not just an issue in other places in the world, like the big elephant south of us. Canada is known as a peaceful and welcoming place for many people from all over. But we in Canada have our own history and skeletons and black eyes and prejudices. Whether in Canada's sometime, sometimes horrifying dealings with indigenous peoples or the slave trade that existed here too, or the tensions between French and English people over the years, or in the fluctuating anti-Semitic or anti-black or anti-Asian sentiments. Locally, in Ottawa, just in the last month, a 10-year-old black boy's arm was broken in a racist attack, an Asian couple's car was spit on, racist graffiti was scrawled on other cars at U of O, and an Asian young man got a racial death threat walking into the Rideau Center in Ottawa. Like this is, this happens close to home. And we've got to wrestle with this on even a personal level in our own hearts and our own church. We may be harboring prejudices or bias or anger against certain kinds of people or certain ethnic groups, or maybe preferences for certain kinds of people over others. So, let's approach this humbly, okay, ready to hear what God has to say. Like, that's what we're here to do, to hear what God has to say about this. So before I'm accused of cultural Marxism or white-splaining or being too conservative or too liberal, like, this is not something that I just want to get up here and spout my own opinions or beliefs over at all. I only want to give you what God has to say any quarrel you have is really with him. I want you to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, who received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. To see if these things were so. I plan on quoting quite a bit from other wise, godly people as well today. And so test what I say. Test what they say according to what God says. The Bible's our main authority as in life as Christians. We must start and end with it. As Shai Lin says, I am not particularly interested in any discussion of this subject that is not rooted in, informed by, shaped by, and guided by the Bible. The Bible must have final say on this topic. We will neither honor the Lord nor make progress in the discussion of ethnic unity unless believers on all sides are willing to have our perspectives enlightened by, challenged by, corrected by, and even rebuked by the Bible. I agree with that. We'll be jumping around a lot today. It might be hard to follow at times, so I hope you're able to, to flip through quickly. We'll put your sword drill skills to the test. But the first place you can turn to today is very easy to find, Genesis chapter 1. Very first chapter in the book. You can turn there with me now. Genesis 1, where we will see the first of what I believe are four foundational biblical principles on this. Okay, four principles. First one, that 
as humans and believers, our supreme identity is found in the image of God and in union with Christ. So our most important supreme identity is found in the image of God and in our union with Christ. First of all, every human being alive on this planet is created in the image of God. Look with me. Genesis 1, verse 27. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And what this means, that we are created in the image of God, means that we are like God in certain ways. We're a, a dim reflection of what God is like. Since we share in the same roots, it means that we share the same value, same dignity, and the same worth. Like none of us has any less of the image of God than anyone else. We are created equal. This further means that your physical identity and features are created by and valued by God. No matter where you come from, no matter what you look like, you bear his likeness. It's a denial of this fundamental truth that's led to some of the worst horrors of human history. From chattel slavery to the Holocaust, to multiple genocides, some of which are still ongoing, to modern-day abortion. It's a demonic deception that leads people to see themselves as intrinsically superior to others. We're all made in God's image. We all share his image. We all come from the same human family tree, which means we are not so different, you and I. And diversity is not irreconcilable. And this is also why we all need the same gospel. We're all part of the same fallen race. Wait, what? We're part of the same race? Yes, biblically speaking, we are all part of the human race. The Bible does differentiate between all kinds of diversity within humanity. Think of the great multitude from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. But what's not on that list? Races or skin colors even. Now, we might ask how John would know on sight that these were people from everywhere if not for the colors he saw. That's absolutely true. He sees their colors. But my point is, race, in the modern sense of the word, is not a biblical category. Nations, peoples, clans, tribes, yes, essentially ethnicity, but not race. Pastor Mike Kelsey explains that race is the way of classifying people and assigning value to people based on physical characteristics. In North America, that looked like doing that by skin color. It has no basis in science or biology. You could call it a social construct. That doesn't mean that, that race is never a helpful category to use. We use social constructs all the time. And these, con these constructs shape our lives and experiences for better or for worse. Neither does this mean that the color of your skin doesn't matter. God made you that way. And we should not be 
colorblind Christians. Human ethnic diversity is beautiful. Vodi Bakum, who's black, says to act colorblind is an affront to God. God didn't give me all this rich, beautiful melanin so you can act like I don't have it. Whatever color you are, you are purposely designed and defined by God. What I'm just trying to say here is that, that your race or your skin color is not nearly the most important thing about you. You're a human, that's the image of God. But this is especially true if you are a Christian. Your identity has an extra special supreme layer to it now. And that's the point of Galatians 3.28. You can flip over there with me. Galatians 3.28. Might be harder to find. I'll give you a second. It says this in verse 28, Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now people will take this verse, rip it out of context, and use it as a proof text for all kinds of things. To say that ethnicity doesn't matter. To say that we shouldn't see color. To say that gender is unimportant or even fluid. To say that any kind of distinctions like this divide. But no! Our ethnic, social, or gender distinctions do not disappear when we come to Christ. This is saying that over and above any of those distinctions, we are one in Christ. Jasmine Holmes explains that Paul was saying here that no matter who we are, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Greek, if we are in Christ, we are siblings who stand on equal footing before the cross. Our primary identity now is that we belong to Jesus as part of his chosen race. 1 Peter 2.9 There are plenty of groups and movements today who will try to claim your main identity. And really it's, it's reducing you to your race color, class, gender, sexual orientation, level of oppression. Don't buy it. Like if you're in Christ, those may influence you, but they don't define you. Like I have far more in common with my black, indigenous, or Asian brothers or sisters in Christ than I do with my white, unsaved neighbor, or even my white, unsaved family members. Blood may be thicker than water, but Jesus' blood and water is thicker than both. Because we all have the same roots in the image of God, and because believers have the same redemption in Christ, it means that any sense of racial hierarchy goes directly against God's design. It is evil. However, you might think, well, say the, the word racism doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. So how can I say this? Well, just because race isn't a biblical category doesn't mean racism doesn't exist. 
Like saying the Bible doesn't talk about racism is kind of like saying the Bible doesn't talk about piracy or pornography. Right? It talks plenty about stealing and sexual sin to know those things are wrong. Likewise, what I'll tell you here is racism is evil because it falls under biblical categories of sin. Racism is evil because it falls under biblical categories of sin. And all sin is evil. Let me give you three categories here that I believe racial sin would fall under. First of all, partiality. Partiality. You might say injustice, favoritism, treating others with inequality. Partiality is a sin because God is impartial and thus it violates the image of God in us. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. You catch that? The Lord is great, he's mighty, he's awesome, he's impartial. The truth that is echoed by Peter in Acts 10 in the context there of overcoming ethnic division. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Acts 10, 24. Then we come to James 2. Turn over there with me. James chapter 2. Towards the end of the New Testament. Give you a second and then listen to these words. James 2, starting in verse 8. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, apparently, the church in James's day was, was treating some people better than others, giving them preferred seats or privileged treatment. Today, we may describe partiality as prejudice or discrimination, but it's still sin. And James 2 tells us that that's because it goes against the law of loving our neighbors as ourselves. And that's the second biblical category of sin I'll give you. Lovelessness. Lovelessness. You could say hatred or hostility or enmity, all of which are on lists of sins in the Bible, by the way. But a, a lack of love can play itself out in our minds, hatred or malice or bitterness, in our speech, cursing others with slurs or insults or offensive jokes, or in our behavior, ungentleness or violence, anger, quarrels. Whenever we show lovelessness like this, we show ourselves actually to be deserving of God's wrath, as if we were total unbelievers. Colossians 3 says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So what do we have to do? Put these things away. Throw them out. Repent. But there's a problem. See, if I go out in my yard to kill all the weeds in my garden or my lawn. 
But I just rip the tops off all the weeds, leaving the roots in the ground. What happens? Just come right back, right? You've got to get rid of the roots, all the roots. It's like that with many sins that we try to get rid of in our lives. We try to address behaviors. We try to rip the tops off. But if we don't get the root attitudes and beliefs changed, the sins will come back. With racism, there is a root sin that most people ignore and almost all of us have. And you may have never thought of yourself as a racist before, and maybe you're not. But I hope we can start to see here that we are all, every one of us, guilty of the same sins that racism stems from. And with the right roots, any of these sins can spring up in our lives. I truly believe that given the right circumstances and given the right triggers, we would all be racist. So, what is the sin at the root of racism. Pride. Pride. It's a, a self-righteousness and superiority. To see ourselves as better than or more significant than others in various ways. Like the Pharisee in Luke 18 praying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. This self-righteous pride we can all struggle with so easily, and that then easily leads to racial sins. How so? Tim Keller, quoting Richard Lovelace, explains it well. He says, when you rely on your own achievements or pedigree or behavior more than the justifying work of Christ for your sense of significance and security, Lovelace argues, it makes you radically insecure. We need to bolster our sense that we are really good, lovable, worthy people because at the deepest level, we know we are not. One bitter and common fruit from this failure to grasp grace salvation and make it your heart's operating principle is racism. Lovelace writes, They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They fix upon their race, their membership in a party, and their culture as means of self-recommendation. For most people then, race and culture are a kind of self-righteousness. We think of ourselves as the good ones, not like those people over there. We secretly or not so secretly, despise people of races and cultures or politics different from our own as a way to patch up a righteousness of our own. Got to be careful here. Right? Because as we rightly condemn racism, we can fall into the same error. Like thinking that racists are just morally inferior to us, below us, and our pride grows. And Keller concludes that the racism is one virulent, destructive manifestation of something that absolutely every person is doing in their heart. If we forget this, like we, can, we can just try to shame racism and just end up aggravating divisions. We should... 
repent of our own self-righteous pride first so that we can exhibit the heart transformation that the gospel gives. Our hope is there. This week, my wife and I were watching the movie Selma, which depicts Martin Luther King Jr.'s marches for equal, equal voting rights in America in the midst of really some violent racism prevalent in the South in the 1960s. But as I watched this movie, I was intrigued by one rather side character in the movie, Alabama Governor George Wallace. Dr. King once called him perhaps the most dangerous racist in America. His own biographers called him the most influential loser in U.S. politics. I looked it up to see if it's true. It sure seems to be accurate. However, that wasn't the end of Wallace's story. About a decade after the events in the movie, he came to Christ. Many scoffed at this. Think, well, nothing's ever going to change about him. But it did. Drastically. He started openly renouncing his prior racist beliefs and actions. He publicly apologized to civil rights leaders, asked for their forgiveness. And, he, and then his actions started backing up his words, and he, made, he actually made a historic number of appointments of black people in his own government. But here's what struck me most. When he was describing his confessions, he said what had led him into racism was seeking power and glory for himself. This is his pride at work. But Wallace said, I now realize what I need is not power and glory. I need to seek love and forgiveness. Toward the end of his life, Wallace was able to address marching crowds in Selma again on an anniversary march, and he addressed them with love. And one of the original civil rights leaders from 1965, Joseph Lowry, said this to him. Say, so you are a different George Wallace today. We both serve a God who can make the desert bloom. We serve a God that can make the desert bloom. Neither racism nor any of its roots are the unpardonable sin. Right? It's, it's evil, it's wicked, it's demonic, but it's not beyond the blood of Jesus. And not only is the gospel of Christ our only hope of personal pardon, I believe that the gospel is the only hope of true reconciliation with others. Here's what I'll say here, that the gospel provides the foundation and the power to overcome racial division and hurt. The gospel provides the foundation and the power to overcome racial division and hurt. To see this, turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The beginning of this great chapter explains how we who weren't just sinners, but dead in our sins, and by nature children of wrath, how we can be reconciled to God. Look with me in verse 4. 
It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In other words, we can't do anything to save ourselves. So forget your self-righteousness. Forget your pride. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. If you're listening in today and you haven't put your faith in God's grace before, I hope you will. Because this is our only hope. Like realize that the only way your evil can be forgiven is by Jesus dying in your place. And recognize the, the amazing grace that God offers you today. He says it's a gift. We can receive it just by reaching out and accepting the gift. That's the first half of Ephesians 2. The second half of Ephesians 2 then talks about us being reconciled to one another. Which makes sense, right? Because sin broke our relationships with God and with other people. So, but once we're united to Christ, we're actually reunited as a new people across ethnic lines. Look at verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having excuse me, no hope and without God in the world. Now that's talking about an ethnic division between Jews and Gentiles, which often turned hostile. And yet, look at what Jesus has done. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he's saying there was this wall between people of different ethnic groups, but people of God before. And now Jesus tore down that wall. And he says, he both, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, in essence, a new humanity in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Did you know that when Jesus died, something else died with him? Jesus killed it. Now, that's a graphic picture. What did he kill? The hostility between his people. The hostility. He didn't just die to forgive us for this sin, but he died to destroy the power of this sin. Now his people have been, been made one new man, it says. He's made peace between us. Jews and Gentiles can be united in him, along with all other formerly enemy races. Our, in this, our natural ethnicities are not obliterated. They're transcended by this new humanity. 
goes on to say that we're both equal citizens and family members now. Follow along, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Whether you are white or black or brown, indigenous or of European descent, francophone or anglophone, Israeli or Palestinian or Arab or Iranian, Indian or Pakistani, Japanese or Chinese or Korean, Filipino, Jesus died to bring us together in peace and unity. He died to do this. We saw the ultimate fulfillment of this in Revelation 7, right? With all peoples united for his glory. As Shailin explains, God's original design was a diverse group of people united in proclaiming his praises and living for his glory. The fall was an interruption of that design. God's remedy for that interruption is the gospel. Embedded into the gospel is God's plan for a diverse group of redeemed worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I quoted this a couple weeks ago. The Lord Jesus Christ is so glorious that one people group is not enough to reflect his greatness. He wants all of them. When we see the, the price that was paid by Jesus to reconcile us, it transforms our hearts. And when we see the glorious result that will come one day, it motivates us to reflect this now. The gospel really provides the, the best foundation we can imagine for reconciliation. It's really the only vision out there that leads to, to human flourishing of all people everywhere. We may often put our hope in, in other things, methods and marches and legislation and policies and other people, and those things can be fine and good. But more than any of them, we need a Savior. Because the gospel is what gives us power to repent when we've done wrong, even horrific wrongs. And the gospel is what gives us power to forgive when we've been hurt, even horribly hurt. I hope you can start to see here that Seeking to overcome racial division or hurt is a natural outworking of the gospel. Some people say, just preach the gospel. Or, or standing against racism is not a gospel issue. And I'll grant you that it's not a gospel issue if what you mean by that is that it's not part of the gospel story itself. Like the gospel is Jesus' redemptive life, death, and resurrection, period. But that gospel has many implications for our lives. It impacts all of life. 
Shailen reminds us that there is such a thing as the doctrine of indwelling sin. Though, though the Christian has been redeemed, there's an aspect of our nature known as the flesh that wars against the spirit, Galatians 5.17. A big part of discipleship is gradually turning from old sinful attitudes and mindsets. Racism, bigotry, prejudice, ethnic strife, those, are, those things are rooted in sin. And we don't just say about other sins, just preach the gospel and it will go away. We don't say, just preach the gospel and pride is gone. Or just preach the gospel and there will be no more lust or anger. No, we preach about those things. We warn against those things. We discuss those things. And when those things are not repented of, a healthy church will discipline a person because of these things. It's not just going to magically go away. Mike Kelsey hammers this point home by making a comparison with abortion. How millions of babies have been slaughtered over the last few decades in North America. And how that's not just tolerated, but celebrated in our culture. Then he says, imagine me responding to that this way. Why do we keep bringing that up? Abortion is complex. There are so many factors involved. The facts aren't always so cut and dry. Just preach the gospel and stay away from those political issues. Most Christians would be appalled by that response and emphatically argue against it, and rightfully so. Why? Because we know that injustice requires more than merely preaching the gospel. In fact, our preaching rings hollow and hypocritical if it doesn't compel us to action. Yes, we, we must preach the gospel. And we must also live lives transformed by the gospel. Let me take you to a crucial passage of scripture to show you this. Philippians chapter 1 and 2. This is a couple pages over from Ephesians. Philippians 1. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi here whom he loved and missed big time. And in verse 27 of chapter 1, he tells them his number, like his number one desire for them. Verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, live in such a way that shows you've been changed by Jesus. So, what does living worthy of the gospel look like? Look at it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. What it looks like is fearless unity. Standing firm as one. Working together as one. And Paul says something very similar in Ephesians 4, where he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what does that look like? Well, there it looks like humility, gentleness, patience, love. And it looks like, I quote, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's the same formula. 
And once we're saved, once we've been saved, we should be eager to maintain gospel unity. And how can we do this if we are divided along racial or ethnic or tribal lines? In Galatians 2, Paul talks about a time he had to correct his fellow apostle Peter. Peter had been eating with Gentile believers rightly and freely, but when some of his Jewish friends came along, he got scared of what his friends would think, and it says that he, he drew back and separated himself. Ethnic segregation, in essence. But when Paul saw this, he openly confronted Peter, because he says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Catch that? Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Our conduct should be in step with the gospel, and that includes ethnic harmony. Eric Mason says, in the gospel, man is not just reconciled to God by faith. Man is also reconciled to man by faith. God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. He doesn't give us the luxury of refusing to be reconciled. If God could pursue reconciliation with us, in spite of all our sins, our rebellion, our issues, we should be rushing toward one another to reconcile. And what's great about this reconciliation is that we don't actually need to achieve it or generate it ourselves. It's already been accomplished by Christ on the cross. As Ephesians 2 said, we've been reconciled. Now, we just need to walk in it. Bodhi Bakum compares it to when a married couple runs into marital hardship. Even if they become alienated or estranged, they don't need to go get married again. They need to be reminded of their union and to strengthen their union, to live in their union, but they don't need to achieve their union. Do you get the difference? That's our situation now. When we are united to Christ, we are already united in Christ and reconciled to each other through the cross. We don't always live like it. But in order to overcome these divisions and these hurts, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel and start walking in its reality again. Now that doesn't mean we don't work hard to strengthen our unity and reconciliation, but the work that gives us the power to overcome has already been done. So, what does this look like, practically speaking? How does the church do this? This is where we could preach a dozen different sermons, a hundred different passages, and I could not do it justice today. But I'll still give you a list of ways I believe God's word gives us that we can pursue this unity in the church. And I think that I can sum them all up under the heading of love. Not squishy, sentimental love, but solid, sacrificial love, like Christ's love for us. 
So we must seek genuine, selfless love for one another as Christ loved us. Across racial lines, we must seek genuine, selfless love for one another as Christ loved us. And this looks like so many different things. This looks like making sure that our love is genuine, not flimsy or fake. Romans 12. This looks like working for true and righteous justice where injustices have been done. And of course, we need to define justice biblically, not letting our culture define our terms. But the Bible's very clear that God's people are to be justice-loving, justice-doing people. This looks like being sincerely kind, a virtue that is so lacking these days. This looks like sharing the gospel with people of all races. That's the truest kindness we can do. This looks like patiently listening to our fellow brothers and sisters who are different than us. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Every person. This looks like humble confession of sin when people have been sinned against. This looks like sympathetically lamenting others' pain. That verse, weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. Whether or not there's anything to confess, there is plenty to lament about racial injustice. So much of this comes down to the command to bear each other's burdens. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? To love God, to love our neighbors. And listen, if our black or indigenous, or Asian siblings are carrying a heavy burden of pain. We dare not be dismissive or unsympathetic of their plight. That is not bearing burdens. This also looks like patiently bearing with those who disagree with you or don't understand. Not giving up on others, or canceling them, or worse, demonizing them, just because walking this road of reconciliation is hard and long. This even looks like forgiveness. Forgiving as God in Christ forgave you, Ephesians 4.32. This looks like Intentional hospitality, inviting people of different who are different than you into your life. This looks like not just putting up with or tolerating people of different ethnic backgrounds, but actually showing preference to them. Biblical love goes beyond equality to actually treating others as better than, as more important than ourselves. This looks like earthly gratitude, 
for what we have in a multi-ethnic church of Christ now and heavenly anticipation for how this diversity will be perfected one day. Now, all of that that I just flew over in three minutes, that's what we're going to talk about next Sunday. I want to prove this all from God's word, and I hope it moves us all to live out this kind of love. For now, I'll draw your attention back to Philippians. Let these words wash over you, challenge you today. Like, listen to them, apply them to this context. Okay, why should we pursue reconciliation and unity through genuine selfless love? Because this is precisely what Jesus did for us. And our manner of life is to be worthy of his genuine selfless love, worthy of the gospel. Look with me, chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Like that is the total opposite of racism right there. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Like, may that be true in our church. May that be true of us. No excuses here. This is what Jesus did. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of course, the story doesn't end there. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You got a knee? Have you got a tongue? No matter what color you are, Jesus wants you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you humble us where our pride keeps clinging on, where we look out for ourselves. We put others down. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have showed partiality and lovelessness and pride in our dealings with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You purify us again in the blood of Jesus and bind us together as one for your glory and your renown. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.